This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. So a lot of things happening in the news these days. Are there? Yeah, a lot, a lot of things going on. And it really started getting my my brain kind of grinding um, about storytelling and in particular about historical fiction. Yeah, I feel like your brain is often grinding about historical fiction, Yes, which or, is one of the things I love about you. Or just history in general. Yeah. But, you know, in particular, the uh, the debate that is popping up all over the country about the rise of white supremacists, the defending of Confederate memorials in town squares and, you know, violence in the street and, you know, presidents doing nudge, nudge, wink, wink to Nazis. Dog whistles. Yeah, yeah. And, and a huge part of the argument that is entering the public arena is over the um, kind of the argument of memorialization and uh, remembrance of history is kind of being co-opted by those who would rather rewrite or revise history, right? Yeah. Oh, I would say, I, I, I think I know where you're going, but I would almost say the opposite is true. Yeah. Are you saying that white supremacists are trying to rewrite uh, Civil War history for their own political purposes? I would say that uh, that white supremacists are using the argument of we need, we need these monuments to continue to remember our history so that we don't forget, and at the same time marching alongside Nazis who either uh, support or ignore the history uh, that, that built them. See, I would argue that uh, in a more nuanced way, we are seeing a intellectual argument to reshape and re- reframe the Civil War history as a lens of uh, the African-American experience and the abolishment of slavery away from the traditional Confederate victimization and romanticization, which has then led to the, no, you can't take down our statues. And right. it's, it's precisely because people are saying, we need to rethink this history and how we commemorate it that has spurned the, uh, the ire of the, the neo-Nazis and neo-fascists present in America. Absolutely. But, you know... Um, it got me thinking about the choices that storytellers make when they choose their setting as a historical backdrop. And no piece of American history, I think, has ever been tackled with you know greater amount of success, both commercially and artistically, and just volume, sheer amount of stories, than the American Civil War. So I thought it would be interesting to take apart uh, a contemporary post-9-11 Civil War story in film. And so I've been wanting to talk about this movie for a long time on this podcast. And we're going to be diving into the Martin Scorsese, Daniel Day-Lewis movie, Gangs of New York. Yeah, And we should preface by saying this is likely going to grow into a multi-part series on uh, our relationship to history as it is defined by the stories that we tell and the stories that we love and the way that we as humans 
parse our our love of the art and the artistic intent um, from the larger historical implications of that work of art. So it's going to be an interesting uh, dive into the depths of ambiguity in these next few episodes. So we hope you're excited to come on this little deep dive with us. Yeah, and if you haven't seen Gangs of New York, spoiler, spoiler wall, it's up now. We will be spoiling it. If you have a Hulu account, it's currently streaming on Hulu for yeah, free. Yeah, and there were no commercials. Yeah, and you can rent it on iTunes or Amazon pretty cheaply for like three or four bucks. Um, I have a copy on Blu-ray. Hit me up. I will loan anyone in the Philadelphia area who wants to borrow it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, definitely I would recommend seeing the movie before we dive into it. Yeah, you and, just have a little more context. Yeah, and there is there is a... Uh, there's a lot to talk about in this movie and a lot of different directions. So I don't intend our conversation to be comprehensive and it's not a perfect movie in the way like the Godfather, um, Superman two, like Jurassic park. It, it, it's not a timeless classic of a movie. It's not even Martin Scorsese's best movie. It doesn't even contend um, in the history of film but I think there are some really amazing things when we think of why this story in history, why is it told the way it's told, and what is it saying about uh, New York politics in particular that I think is very interesting, and it makes some interesting arguments about class, and uh, I'm excited to get into it. The other thing I'd say is preference of introduction. Another reason you should see it, Daniel Day-Lewis is in it, and in my not so humble opinion, I think it's its best character that he has ever done. It's really masterful work. Uh, and Daniel Day Lewis is probably one of our top five living actors, but he really blows this one away. It's really a, a, a slam dunk so much. So it's almost a problem for the movie. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. He's so much better and more charismatic and more engaging. And he's the antagonist, Bill, the butcher. Uh, he's the bad guy that it makes all of the other performances that just don't match his his awesomeness and makes those characters just not as cool. Yeah, they just get a little weak in comparison. And this is still like this is still like relatively early Leo too. So this isn't Oscar Leo by right. any Right. This is this is Leo becoming a serious actor. Yeah. And working still, on it. Yeah, still growing into that being like a, a real heavy hitter yeah. A lister who does like serious works of art. Yeah, still still carrying the, uh, the Titanic little, torch. There's a little growing pains in him. Yeah. See what I did there? Oh, no. Yeah, there's a little growing pains in oh, him. Oh, my God. All right, so... Well, that's what's eating Laurel Hostack. So this movie takes place in New York. It starts in the year 1846 and goes up to the middle of the Civil War. And it is, uh, it's about street gangs fighting for turf in an area of New York called the Five Points. Named because five streets come to an area. Right. And it's like a natural, like, congregating area. And the main, um, you know, source of antagonism is the gang of the American Federation of Nativists. So people that believe America is for natural-born Americans versus the tidal wave of Irish immigration that's occurring. Now, right out of the gate, we have something very interesting historically because there was a great famine in Ireland. They did immigrate in mass numbers to places like New York, and they were treated with natural hostility and anger. And the character, Bill the Butcher, is based off of a real butcher by the name of Bill, who was a nativist who fought on the streets of New York. So there's already a, a rich context that it's setting up here in this sort of Shakespearean power struggle between Bill the Butcher and the son of his enemy, Amsterdam Valen, who's right. Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah, it, and it, I love that you say Shakespearean because it did strike me, this was the first time I had seen the movie in preparation for this podcast, so I'm still kind of a like a, an intro to Gangs of New York viewer. Um, but yeah, it strikes me that you say Shakespearean because the film really did come off as theatrical to me. Um, it at many occasions took its uh, took as many opportunities as possible to um, to really feel like a play, whether that was in the way that the characters spoke to each other and related to each other, the subtext underlying the um, the dialogue or the like striking and yet somehow two dimensional visuals of some of these like gang fights. I'm thinking of the the first fight that we have 
that almost feels like you're looking at a stage set and it's kind of visually compelling in that way that we sort of feel like we're watching Les Mis a little bit. Um, and it, later in the movie, we do see actual stage productions and we see, uh, we see performances as a huge, uh, huge recurring motif within the movie. We see Uncle Tom's Cabin um, is performed on a stage, and yet the major piece of performance that happens is this assassination attempt on Bill the Butcher. Uh, and then later we see the sort of knife-throwing act. So performances and theatricality are something that continue to come back and again and again in this film, something that I'll definitely talk a little bit about tonight. Yeah, yeah. Um, the Scammerhorns, the characters that are rich, uh, that are touring the five points, sort of as a, they call it a fact-finding study, right. um, is a stage actor. Yeah. As profession, he's this rich, wealthy stage actor who wants to see it. I totally agree. The, the scene where the uh, newly elected Irish sheriff gets assassinated uh, by Bill the Butcher, he he dresses the crowd like he's monologuing in a play, um, and the audience says nothing back. So yeah, I totally agree with that theme. And you have to also also think about where this film is, uh, where this story is taking place, which is kind of on the outskirts of the war. It's just out of focus of the Civil War, and so a major character who is never actually in the movie but is a huge presence looming over the whole thing is Lincoln. And where did Lincoln die but in a theater, an assassination? Uh, and so I think those themes are, are pretty potent because of that intention, because of that sort of cloud that lurks over this whole thing, that that image of Lincoln as this almost Christ-like figure on the outside who some revile and some adore. Yeah, it's an interesting um, thought. And uh, sort of in a Shakespearean way, one of the ultimate conclusions of it, we're getting a little ahead, we're getting towards the end of our analysis, <laughs> but the, the main uh, point in the historical sense, the argument that this movie is making is that you might be engaged in the most important power struggle of your life. You might be engaged in literally life or death um, and fighting for your very survival against an enemy that's insidious that wants to destroy you. And that may mean nothing next to the broader narrative that's happening outside of your bubble. So let's, uh, let's get into, we, we started really big thematically. So let's get into some of the minutia about, the arguments I think the film is making through their characters. And I think we should look at both Bill the Butcher and Amsterdam Valen and their arguments. Right. Um, so we spend most of the movie with Amsterdam Valen plotting vengeance against Bill the Butcher. His father was killed by Bill the Butcher. Bill the Butcher doesn't know Amsterdam's father was killed by him. And he sort of infiltrates Bill the Butcher's criminal organization and quickly rides to prominence in it where he's sort of like a, a number two, like a, like a groomed top Lieutenant and bill. The butcher starts developing a uh, deep fond and affection for him. And we start seeing bill. The butcher have this sense of love, despite the fact that his entire philosophy is that the Irish immigrant is upending and destroying everything that America is it is the ire, it is the fuel to the fire of what he thinks will ultimately cause the American civilization to fail, which is the immigration of ire, of the Irish to his city. Yeah, um, I just want to point out the sort of the, the multitude of, of techniques of irony that are being employed in this relationship too. Uh, this relationship between Amsterdam and Bill the Butcher is not only an example of dramatic irony where the audience and one of the characters maybe knows something that another character doesn't, which is that this is, of course, the son of Priest Fallon, who was you know, a, a noble sort of leader of a rival gang who was murdered by Bill the Butcher in the first scene. Um, and then the situational irony and these contradictions that live very, very starkly side by side in Bill uh, and live side by side in Fallon, too, that they can have these deeply held principles and yet actually feel a genuine connection with someone who embodies principles diametrically opposed to their own. Absolutely. Cause Bill, the butchers, I, I think you hit the nail right on the head. Bill, the, Bill 
who would do everything in his power to kill every Irish person he sees. He literally argues for the genocide of Irish. He hates them so much that as Irish immigrants are stepping off the boats, he and his gang members are throwing rocks at old women at one point in the scene. That is how fundamentally uh, racist, for lack of a better term, he is against the Irish. I don't know if the Irish count as a race. I don't know. But anyway, like so for lack of a better term, he's racist against the Irish. Right. And that's how deep it is. Yet the only character he shows any affection to or admiration for are all Irish. Yeah. So he really respects Priest Valen, the father of Amsterdam, for being a good and noble warrior, um, though his enemy and he killed him. He really respects the other character, Jenny, who is an Irish immigrant that he took in and raised and actually respects and love. And then there's Amsterdam, his becomes his top rising lieutenant, yeah. who he can sort of mentor and teach the ways of how to be a great crime boss to. Yeah. And and really starts to develop an affection for him. So despite how much he hates the Irish, he builds Irish people all around him and cares about them. It reminds me almost of a, especially with uh, Bill the Butcher's relationship with Priest, it reminds me of a Joker-Batman relationship in a way. Uh, and this movie is almost like a realistic exercise in what would Joker do if he killed the Batman? He'd be kind of sad. Yeah, he'd and- be kind of sad and he would still be crazy and do crazy shit, but he would always kind of memorialize and lament this you know, great figure in his life that he never met a match for. Yeah, and I think though, um, you know, with Bill the Butcher and Priest Valen and and their you know antagonism towards each other, um, you know, I think it's not very super hero villain, oh, you know, not. in that respect. No. Like it's not clear who the good guy and the bad guy is. One is, and so on the other side, so you have the philosophy of the nativist, which is shown to be hypocritical um, and illogical, but very powerful and very gripping and really based upon fear. And this idea that you have to defend your way of life against a foreign enemy that lives right next door to you. Right. So there's that argument there, which is an argument that we are currently having in American uh, modern 2017 political discourse. Yep. Is how do we deal with immigration? And it is center stage by virtue of a nativist, Donald Trump, being president. Um, which I think we could say objectively he's a nativist. Yeah. You know, in regards to the immigration issue, what, whether you agree or don't, he was just like, immigrants are bad, build a wall, kick them out, rough them up. They're bad hombres. And it's so very Bill the Butchery. Yeah. In that. Um, and then on the flip side, Amsterdam doesn't have a philosophy really throughout the beginning of the movie, as much as he's just trying to survive, right? He's trying to survive and we know his motivation is for vengeance. And, uh, but it doesn't seem like it's deeper than that, right? We see him throw the Bible away at one point. He walks out of his, um, essentially the orphanage he's raised in and they give him a Bible. That's the only thing he has. And he throws it in the river kind of just throwing away this, this Bible and this. I thought he was in prison. Was he in prison? He was in uh, a an orphanage. I thought that was a cover story. Anyway. Yeah, they put him in a place called Hellgate, which is a school for boys that don't oh, have kids. Okay. okay. And he internalizes it as prison. Yeah. He describes it as prison. Okay. Um, cool. Bill the Butcher says, give him to the law, see that he gets a good education. Right. So you get the sense that Bill is paying for whatever accommodations he has. Mm-hmm. You know, in that way, being a very surrogate father behind the scenes for him. Yeah. So he gets raised in the orphanage. He throws the Bible away. We don't really see until after his assassination plot for Bill is totally foiled. Bill totally snuffs it out and realizes who he is because one of uh, Amsterdam's friends turns on him over a woman. And um, in that, then we start to see him sort of emerge as a leader on his own right. And this is where he starts mimicking Bill the Butcher's own backstory, where Bill lost his first battle to the priest, Valen, and then rose up and killed him. And now Amsterdam loses his first battle with Bill, gets beaten horrifically, and is now trying to rise up and build his own army. And he realizes that the Irish aren't uh, simply a rabble. They're an army. 
if you can motivate and you can link the Irish together, the power of their numbers is unstoppable. And this manifests not only as a as a literal army who fight with whatever weapons available, but as a political coalition. So they start to work the same kinds of channels as Bill has been working over the past, you know, decades by, you know, negotiating with the lead politicians, negotiating with Tammany Hall, uh, and making sure they can elect Irish representatives into positions of power. And using you know, total election fraud oh, and yeah, blanted yeah, yeah. open corruption. Which was a huge thing in New York. But yeah, just sitting there saying, all right, it's election day. My candidate, I'm going to get them into office by forming a political coalition. And anyone who disagrees with me, I'm going to thump over the head with a stick. Pretty much. And they elect a candidate as uh, the sheriff of, of the five points. Played by the great Brendan Gleeson. The other, I think, the other really amazing performance, you have Daniel Daniel Day-Lewis and then his, I think are the two standout performances. Yeah. Um, And so then we have have that, they form that political coalition. So we see that uh, Fallon realizing that he doesn't have power of arms per se, but he has power of numbers. And realizing I need to use the power of numbers and by virtue of that, then I will have actual power. And once I have power, I can defend my people, right? My disenfranchised Irish. So there's a there's a lesson of of class. There's an anti aristocracy mm-hmm. happening in the way that Valen articulates his power in the like later to second half of the movie. Yeah. And meanwhile, all of this is happening. There is this sort of looming presence over rage about the first ever draft in American history. Yeah, the Conscription Act. And this is where this narrative smashes history right into the face. This is where it stops being just about gangs in a lawless and forgotten slum of New York. And this is where it starts being about America writ large. It starts being about the Civil War and the politics of the Civil War. And what is the soul of our country? And... Uh, New York did, in fact, have draft riots that were very bloody. They did have to call in the army to suppress them. This is an actual event. When they first started reading out the draft names, the poor citizens of New York are like, fuck this, the rich guys are going to go off and fight. Uh Uh-uh. Or the rich guys aren't going to go off and fight because they're going to pay and the poor are going to, and you're just going to draft me into this army? Right. And a massive riot occurred. And this happens in concert with the events of the the you know second third of the or last third of the of the movie, in which this riot happens and you know Bill the Butcher in Amsterdam build their gang armies and are ready to fight for the control of the five points and they can't because of the riots. Right. In which they all get slaughtered. Yeah. All of them get slaughtered under the face under the tide of history of something more important than what their struggles were and are like overtakes them and forces them to confront what's really happening in the nation. In other words, it breaks them out of their selfish. It breaks them out of their stagnation. It breaks them out of their pettiness and puts them into the center of a uh, larger um, conflict happening in a nation that's bigger and more important than them as individuals. And I think that's where this movie gets really cool and really beautiful in the way that it robs us of what we're thinking of the Shakespearean big bloody finish where they would battle to the death and Amsterdam finally avenges his father. It's not like that at all. You know, when they're finally at each other and they're finally ready to fight and cannon fire interrupts the battle, mortally wounds Bill the Butcher, uh, nearly mortally wounds Amsterdam and Bill the Butcher without a weapon, Amsterdam with a knife, and Bill's just like, well, you might as well just kill me. And in his bleeding out, dying moments, Bill the Butcher grabs Amsterdam's hand as he dies. And it's really beautiful, and it's a symbol of both their hatred for each other, their respect for each other, the love they have for each other, and at the end of the day, that their conflict was meaningless. And it's a sort of declaration of equality too. You, you and I are equals 
and we weren't able to destroy each other. And in, a, in my last moments, I, Bill the butcher, butcher, will rob you of the satisfaction of being my undoing. And he does say, at least I die a true American. So he sticks yeah. to his nativist philosophy to the end. He, is, he does not get to overcome that. Um, not even close. Because uh, another lesson that I think this movie teaches us is that uh, open, unchecked prejudice is a powerful ideology despite evidence and reason and people that you care about that are in the group that you're prejudiced, it still is not enough to shake Bill out of his hatred for the Irish. Especially when, uh, you know, it has an ability to, to spread and to be this kind of insidious thing when it's backed by charisma and likability. In politics, passion and charm go hand in hand with power. They can continue to lift each other up like a ladder. And I think that's something that we continue to see in, in our leadership, uh, that, that passion, charm, wit, you know, even, even what we might not call high or like refined wit can continue to elevate a leader. Totally. And Bill the Butcher is super charismatic. Yeah. And super cool and played by a great actor and in many ways steals the show and it becomes a more tortured anti-hero than just a pure, like, prejudiced, hateful villain. And he's a, I honestly think he's a much more interesting character. Uh, this, you know, being a, a side effect of both the performance and also the the script, I think he's a much more compelling and complex character than our protagonist than Amsterdam. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's the, like when you pick apart the movie and try to evaluate where it stands in the history of movies and where it stands in the history in particular of Martin Scorsese, a treasure, like just one of the greatest movie makers, yeah. filmmakers, whatever you want to call it. One of the best out there. Um, yeah, he's an icon where this falls short that with Daniel day Lewis. So outperforming everyone, the other characters come across much more flat, much less dynamic, much less engaged, much less cared. And even though they're, none of them are bad. And much less convincing in the argument. I would say that the film in its, um, in its visuals and in its actual kind of show don't tell um, technique does a lot more to articulate the argument against nativism than the character Amsterdam does. I don't necessarily think that he feels strongly one way or another because his approach is so single-minded. Yeah. Because he's so, so propelled by revenge. Because his motivation, unlike his father, which was for peace and just a little bit of land for him and his his kind, Amsterdam is there to finish his father's you know, bloody work. His job is to bathe his enemy in blood. And because of that, we don't get the counter argument, which is one of the big holes of this movie when it comes to it as a historical narrative that we see horrible prejudice. We see it articulated. Uh, we see it fought. We see it defeated, but we never see it get defeated rhetorically. Right. We never see it get undone as a bad ideology on its face, on its own merits. Uh, even though there are moments where where Martin Scorsese tells the story, I can think of the the off the boat onto yeah. the boat scene we and can talk is, about this is a scene that i would love to talk about because i think this was one of the most striking and the one that stayed with me the most in in the entire movie was this you know this really quiet scene of this sort of transition for irish immigrants do you want to describe it a little bit yeah so there's a scene so there's a character named william tweed and he is based off of a real person william tweed who is a prominent uh, democratic party boss and American politics used to be run by bosses. Right. There would be few people in the local area that would control a party and based upon that wield tremendous power and get tremendously wealthy. And they were notoriously mm -hmm. very corrupt. And, uh, you know, boss Tweed was so corrupt. He died in jail. The real boss Tweed that this character is based off of. Yeah. Boss Tweed, to form a political base, greets the Irish off of the boats, gives them soup, and gives them bread as a way of welcome to America, vote for me. 
as a way of trying to form a political base and get his name with what he sees as the future voting bloc. So he is the cynical politician pretending to do favors for the poor, uh, when yeah. in reality what he wants to do is manipulate the poor for his own power, something that, yes, we see happen today, right? Um, still going on today, not as insidious and as openly corrupt as Tweed. Anyway, I digress. At one point, Tweed's handing out bread and soup. Bill the Butcher and his entourage are there, and Tweed says, listen, you deliver these people to the polls, e.g., you force them to vote for me and my party, I will pay you for each vote. And, you know, Bill the Butcher gives a very impassioned speech about how his father died fighting in the War of 1812. And he gives the date and he goes, do you think I would befoul my father's legacy by handing the country over to those that had no part in the fighting for it because they come crawling off of a boat begging you for soup and covered in lice. I paraphrase it. And it's just so passionate and so like, damn, and like so moving. And then Boss Tweed says, you know, you're you're a good fighter, but you can't fight this. This is happening. They're here. They're not going anywhere. Uh, we might as well profit off of it. Or, right. or it's going to destroy you. Like there's, there's more of them than you. Eventually this will destroy you. And they have this little thing. Then Scorsese does this interest cam- interesting camera trick. Right, goes away from that scene, and we follow a trail of men coming off of the boat, literally coming off of the boat and then signing up and being immediately turned into American citizens and signing away to join the army. And in the background, Martin Scorsese does this successfully in many parts of the movie, where he has someone singing a song uh, rather than having a score. Yeah. And there's someone singing a song. We don't know if they're there or if it's the score because he's done it so much singing a song about, you know, being an Irish person, leaving the famine only to then be impressed into service and to fight the civil war. And there's a scene where all of these Irish are just sitting there like, do you think they're going to feed us now? Like, where right, are we going? our free meal? Tennessee. They're like, where's that? What's Tennessee? And, you know, Butcher's argument is, hey, the Irish aren't going to fight for this country. They don't deserve to vote for it. And yet we see them literally in the same place being sent to fight for the country. And it's this beautiful lingering shot of them wandering off of the boat, becoming citizens, becoming soldiers, wandering back onto another boat to take them to the to the front, and then coffins being loaded off of the vo- off of the boat yeah. and laid upon the dock. And so it's this sort of circle of life that's happening right in front of Bill the Butcher's eyes, and he would rather be blind to it because of his extreme prejudice. Yeah, he can't see the open evidence that the Irish are absolutely fighting for the country. And that the stakes are are high for yeah. everyone involved. Absolutely. He can't he can't see it because the hate is so blinding that he has built an intellectual silo that he lives in where all it is is everything reinforces his pre-described and pre-thought of narrative that those that are outside of his silo are evil, bad, anti-Americans here to take from him and he has to literally fight and bloodily fight for what he believes is rightfully his. And that mentality in Bill the Butcher exists today in American political discourse. It's a dangerous, dangerous point of view, and it's everywhere. It's ubiquitous, and it's scary. And it's it's almost hard to it's almost hard to get into the head of the kind of person who feels that way. But I think that Daniel Day-Lewis has given us, you know, an opportunity to kind of live inside of that mind and understand the deep, deep insecurities that are feeding into that point of view, uh, which I, I found actually kind of helpful in seeing this movie and being like, okay, I can almost kind of find a way in to understand that. Yeah, and, you know, in implicit in it is how he fetishizes violence, how he fetishizes women, um, you know, and it's not just the Irish that he hates. He hates the Chinese immigrants. He hates the idea of freed African-Americans, you know, like anyone other than he hates uh, the idea of Catholics. So anyone that's not a white Protestant male to him is an enemy that he needs to fight for 
that they're taking America from him. And it's bred out of an extremely irrational fear, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, this extremely irrational, irrational fear that if public discourse is opened to new voices and new voices that have maybe been marginalized or oppressed in the past, new voices that are different than your own, that you will somehow be less, that you will be then put into the position of those who have been oppressed in the past. And meanwhile, he lives almost like a king. Exactly. Yeah. People, people are constantly coming to pay tribute. He is wealthy, powerful, Gets He's whatever Don he Finucci. wants. He can he can kill someone in broad daylight, and he has so much political power. No one comes to stop him. Right. He literally owns like police police forces and fire forces. Like he just owns them, you know. Um, and uh, yeah, and I think uh, I think you made an interesting point too in the pre discussion. Not to change it up. Yeah, go for I it. I think we I think we hit the nail on the head about uh, the ideologies. Uh, you mentioned that there is something really missing from this movie as a civil war narrative that I thought was interesting to think about. When we think about, hey, is this movie a civil war movie? Right. And there are big holes there if it is. Yeah. It's it's something that's, and as I said, I, I'm a first time viewer of this. And it's kind of interesting to have have seen this as a like post-postmodern viewer. Um because you're post post yeah i'm post post modern post post um, yeah <laughs> sorry i'm distracting you uh, go go on with boomerang in there yeah. um and i was really struggling with the question of why is it important for me to hear this this story right now this story about um about white immigrants being terrorized by other white former immigrants who now consider themselves nativists and why is that story uh something that I should be able to relate to when now things are so deeply divided on a color line and that the the time that this story takes place is a time when the argument for the soul of our country was should white people be able to own black people? And that is not central to this narrative. It is deeply, deeply in the periphery. Absolutely. And it's a kind of difficult thing to struggle with watching it today and I, I don't. Yeah, it's I, missing. I, yeah, it's missing the whole point of the war, who the war was for, what it was about. You know, it, so I, I would say that that is a very fair perspective. Um, and I would also say that this movie is not about the Civil War. It takes place during the Civil War. Right. Right. And I think if it's about the Civil War, then it does need to confront that. Um, but is there an implicit sort of white privilege thing happening in the subtext there in this movie is an interesting question. Yeah. It, and it feels as though the, the choice to tell that story about the, about the stakes and the struggle of the Irish, which I do not intend to diminish at all, um, elevates that to a level, especially within the, like the tight lens of this movie where the plight of, slaves and the plight of freed slaves and the plight of black people is completely, uh, it's just completely forgotten. Yeah. It's pushed so far to the background. There's an attempt to kind of confront that in, um, in there's one character who's part of, uh, part of the sort of inner circle of Amsterdam who's black and who gets, uh, who gets murdered in the end because he's black. Well, and here's where I think from the historian in me would like to chime in and and talk about the decisions that I think separate historical fiction from history and where sometimes historical fiction can fail. So in the uh, movie, Boss Tweed is a Democrat. The Democrats during the time of the Civil War were the party of the the South predominantly. They were the party that was pro-slavery. There was a massive nativist movement happening uh, due to the uh, huge amount of immigration that was happening in this time. So people like Bill the Butcher are based off of real humans. The thing is, is that the nativists also hated slavery for a really fucked up reason. So pardon me if this is offensive to anyone, but they viewed freed labor as an economic threat to the poor white man. They wanted slavery to end 
because they thought if there were paying jobs, white guys would get them. So they hated slavery and saw slavery as a, a part and parcel of their nativist protectionist philosophy. So the nativists joined with the, the radical part of the Whig party and formed the Republican party. Oh my God. And if Bill the Butcher, the character was there and was working with a political boss, it would have been a Republican. And I think in this way, Scorsese has chosen to more memorialize the Republicans by omitting their nativist uh, roots as part of the party and linking it to the party of slavery. And I don't know if that was intentional or just a or because semi-ignorant the, choice. And also because Boss Tweed is such an interesting character um, and, you know, yeah. and someone that you'd want to fictionalize. So why not just make it Boss Tweed? But it's still, it strips down where the nativist philosophy implicit in the Republican Party there from the inception. And, you know, to date, now we have the nativist part of the Republican Party being one of the biggest, loudest, most vocal factions um, which even then, that were still there was just enough to form a coalition to get Lincoln president, um, and the nativists weren't the main part, but they were just that last little slice of the pie they needed to move the electoral map to get a Republican into office as president, this brand new party, and so I think that is the the sort of the toxic soup, so you will, that can happen when uh, a great you know filmmaker kind of oversteps a historical point and maybe creates damage to the discourse, whether intentional or unintentional, um, that you can see. And that's the thing that pops up all over with uh, historical fiction. Yeah, absolutely. And that's just one, that's one example there of how, when we talk about the civil war in literature and in film and in television, how we go so deep into some part of it in a uh, the context of romanticism, the context of sensationalism, when you turn the street fights into Shakespearean sagas, you might overstep and you might unintentionally even trample on an important piece of history. You may be perpetuating myths and legends and sometimes outright lies um, and that we'll see. I don't think we'll have time to talk about it today, but some uh, civil war uh, it, films are just lies. Yeah. Outright hundred percent fabricated propaganda lies. And I think it's important when we see something like, and it's okay that uh, historical fiction will lie about history. I'll give you a, an example in the movie gladiator. It mm. is all a fucking lie. Yeah. Like 99% of it is a lie but it's not supposed to carry any real weight. We're supposed to think it's a fantasy, right? Like it's supposed to in, you know, like maybe from a historical perspective, it will like, you know, fan the flame of imagination. But when you're living under the shadow of an active history, something we're remembering, something we're grappling with, something people are killing each other on the streets over today, our civil war history is still a bloody one. I think it's incumbent to really think these things through. Our civil war history is still a bloody one, and it's still one that people have serious misconceptions about. I'll give you an example, which is that I grew up in Texas, and Texas writes a lot of textbooks because we have a lot of students in that state. And there's not, there's not too much of an illusion over the fact that the civil war was about slavery in this country. But if you grow up in that school system the sort of tendency is toward, oh, yes, of course, the Civil War was about states' rights versus federalism. The the Civil War is about individual responsibility and being able to make your own choices and freedom. Uh, and Such bullshit. It's bullshit. Such bullshit. It's bullshit. I've and read, I, I've taken classes, I've read so many books. The Civil War is an amazing part of our history, and those are just fucking lies. Yeah, and it's it's damaging to grow up in an environment where the true pain and horrors of our history are glazed over in order to create a more favorable view or to kind of candy, candy coat things for children or 
in you particular, know, to even uh, intentionally influence the way we grow up. In particular, a favor favorable view of the people who wanted to destroy the country so that they could own other people. Yeah. 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 Um, wow. Very heavy. Very real. Um, I feel pretty good. Do you want to go to the game or do you have a, do you have some, some I have boomerangs? one last thing to say. Bring this it up. It's a little bit of a midnight myth boomerang. Do it. Um, but we touched a little bit on the theatricality and the sort of Shakespearean quality of the movie gangs of New York. And there are, there are certainly some things that are heightened and, and maybe, maybe dangerously heightened in terms of the stakes of the story that's being told. But I will bring us back again to what you were saying about those final moments of the movie um, where we hear the main character, Amsterdam Valen, reflecting on the almost pettiness and, uh, and the insignificance of the fights that took place at the Five Points on the, you know, the, the gang wars that ravaged those neighborhoods and ravaged that city for decades. Uh, and, and how here today we don't we don't know about that i maybe learned about this in ap us history because i like decided to take ap us history and i don't remember much except for political bosses um but it's a forgotten narrative on the outskirts of the more important narrative that really built uh the the founding arguments of our our modern nation this sort of reflection on how maybe you think you're fighting the fight of your life, but in the end it doesn't matter. And maybe you won't even be remembered. And that takes me once again. How about this? You won't be. You won't be. None of us will be. And the city of New York will, will grow and get taller and weeds will grow on your grave and no one will look at it again. And that's tough to fucking hear. Right. But we've heard it before. And we heard that before in Hamlet. We heard that in Alas, Poor Yorick. We heard that in Macbeth. Macbeth. You know, life's but a walking shadow. Man struts his hour upon the stage. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow signifying nothing, right? Yeah, sad play signifying nothing. No, no. Okay, anyway. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. This, and, and this is a, a Shakespearean recurring theme that, what we are living is sometimes just theater that might entertain somebody in the future who's deciding to put on Hulu, but maybe it's worth setting down our arms for once and looking at the bigger fight and joining hands. Yeah, I, I think that's a great, great final thought. I don't think Gangs of New York is saying that um, it's all nihilism, that it doesn't actually matter. No. I think, whereas... You know, some of those Shakespeare plays, you get the sense that there's some deep nihilism happening there, perchance. I think they're saying that, um, you know, shake yourself out of your own, um, your own silo. Shake yourself out of the own petty world that you're in. And even if your petty world involves struggling for life and death, sometimes that's still petty in comparison to the, the broader or bigger picture. And uh, you might be forgotten and chances are most of us will be. And, you know, there's a great line from a, a band that says, uh, a band I love called uh, Bad Religion. And it's called from the song No Control. If you came to conquer, you'll be king for a day, but you too will deteriorate and quickly fade away. And believe these words you hear when you think your path is clear. You have no control. I think more that's what it's saying. These characters really weren't in control of their fate. None of them were. And they they really had to, at the very end, they got resigned and they got swept away by the tide of history. Yep. Because New York is not the world. It's just not. You got to widen your lens. Amen to that. All right. Want to do, do that thing, Laurel? Let's play a game. All right. Every week here on the Midnight Myth Podcast, we tend to get a little bit real and heavy in the last moments of our discussion. So we like to play a little game to lighten the mood. Uh, and we would love for you to play along at home. So if you have a response to this, please tweet us at The Midnight Myth on Twitter. Uh, hit us up on Facebook. You can search for the Midnight Myth Podcast. You'll find us there. Or drop us a line on the website at www.midnightmyth.com. So... 
this week's game. Want me to take the... Nope, you're... I got it. Go. If you were a gang leader in the 19th century in New York and you had a New York gang, what would your gang be called and why? Am I going first? Yes. Snuffy Fluffaluffagus. Snuffy Fluffaluffagus. What? That'd be my gang name, Snuffy Fluffaluffagus. Okay, I like it. Go on. That's just it. We'd be called Snuffy Fluffaluffagus. Uh, We'd be pretty brutal. I think we would be really into poisoning and hitting people over the head with chains and Mm, ice pick mm -hmm. assassinations. I think those would be the three things we'd be known for. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think we would traffic in all kinds of unsavory black market goods like the sale of, you know, rotted teeth, uh, unicorn horns, um, the intestines of leprechauns, things like that would be what we would mainly do, which I don't think there's enough black market people doing. So I think we'd make a lot of money. I think any gang, gang that got in our way, we would probably poison them in a sort of uh, Arya Stark in, uh, in the phrase style uh, mass poisoning and then maybe pull it off as like a big religious mass, like suicide from a cult. Yeah, I think this that's... This is crazy. That, that, that's my gang. What is going on in your brain? <laughs> that's my gang. I want to open up your head and see what's in there. So this is literally me just improving and thought none of this ahead. That's really weird, And babe. just going. Okay. Well, we've been watching a lot of Rick and Morty. We sure have been watching a lot of Rick and Morty. <laughs> we'll do a Rick and Morty podcast. Plug. Go watch that show. Oh my God, it's so good. It's pretty awesome. It's right. really fucking weird. My turn? Your turn. We're called the Golden Woodchucks. Oh, I like it. Um, some of our listeners know, if you know me, that I've had a, a lot of like really weird, fortuitous uh, meetings with woodchucks over the last few weeks, who I recently found out are the same thing as groundhogs. They're the same animal, guys. Liar. I'm starting to think that they might Fake be my news. spirit animal. Fake but news. the reason that the name of my gang is the Golden Woodchucks is because I really think that I I embody the characteristics of the woodchuck and the people in my gang would also embody those characteristics. Like literally we would burrow deep underground and we would all like live underground in kind of a rabbit warren type situation and we would snuggle a lot and we would be like really fiercely communal and like we would depend on each other for everything and we wouldn't be like too combative. Like people wouldn't be like afraid of us when they see us. I'm uh, Okay, I'm there. But yeah, because like we don't have weapons or nothing. Like we're just like... We hang out underground, but because we're underground, you don't know how many how many of us there are. No, no, we and don't. We've got just tunnels all under New York, and when you're out, we sneak into your house from underneath, and we just fuck up your shit. Brilliant. And we just destroy everything and take all your shit. And we're called the Golden Woodchucks because Brilliant. we just sleep on a mound of like gold from your house. That's amazing. Love it. Yeah, absolutely love it. So uh, cast your vote. Which gang is going to be better? Uh, <laughs> the Golden Woodchucks or the uh, Fluffy Snuffleupagus? I don't even remember what I said. Wubba-lubba-dub-dub. Wubba-lubba-dub-dub. Until next time, be kind. Be kind. Be kind.